0: We'll be reading verses uh, 1 through 7. I'm reading from the New King James translation. Let's read together. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which... Just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, and verse 13 reminds us again, but now in Christ Jesus you once were far off, have been made near by the blood of Christ. Father, today, help us remember what we once were so we can fully appreciate the grace of God that has appeared to all men. Father, help us to understand where our lives were heading and what course we were following, and what dictates drove our lives until we met Jesus. Father, today, help us to understand what we have because of our union with Christ and what grace has accomplished, what nothing else could do, Your grace alone has completed it, has finished it, and made us accepted in your presence. Help us to love you and want to serve you all the more because of our understanding of your amazing grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Just a a quick announcement um, that wasn't on the screen, and we purposely didn't put it on the screen because I wanted to say it. we'll be putting it on the screen soon, but we're planning right now, the third Sunday in August, to have a new members meeting. You may be not a new member, but you're interested. You're in that process. You've already talked to me. I've been in your home, or you've been in my home, or maybe you haven't. Maybe we've talked on the phone, and you just want to know more. What does it mean to be a member of this church? Um, we're going to discuss that on the third Sunday of August. You're not going to have to bring any food and church members. You don't have to bring potluck either. I think I announced it as a potluck, but actually the church is going to be providing that. But you can stay and help serve or you can come later and help clean up. However, church members want to help in that, that function. Let's get into the text this morning. It is one of the most debated passages. And I don't think I'm going to use this because it's down enough space and it's going to fall over. I'm not going to be able to read, but you know what? I would rather do that than knock everything over. Yeah. Getting old is really not fun. (laughs) I can't see my Bible. I can't see the pages. It's all blurry. And if I put it on, I can't see either. I need bifocals but I'm not ready for that yet. Um, (laughs) uh, Trifocals, there you go. Um, Our passage starts out with the word, and you. If you're using a King James or a New King James, and I think the New American Standard may do it as well, but it puts words in italicis. That's because they're not there in the original, but the sense is there. The word you is actually the direct object in verse 1. And so it has to have a verb to make sense. Now, in Greek, you can do that. In English, you can't. And so that's why the italicized words are there. There's only one verb in the sentence, one main verb. And you don't get that until verse 5. Verse 5 is the main verb of this whole passage. And it says, he made us alive together with Christ. That is the verb. And the direct object in this first sentence is you. And so it makes sense. And the translators are correct in the King James, and the New King James, when it says, and you, he made alive. You have to supply that verb. God made who alive? He made you alive. And then we've got all these phrases about who we once were. Well, we're not what we used to be. Praise the Lord. I might not be the greatest guy, but I know this, I'm not what I used to be. Praise the Lord for that. And I'm going to get better, Lord willing. And that's God's goal for every one of us. God's goal for every one of us should be what Paul wrote to the Galatians. But we heard that the one who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And the rest of that verse is, and they glorified God in me. That should be every believer's testimony. I used to be this, and now I am this, and people are glorifying God because of the transformation that they are witnessing in my life. To some degree or another, every believer needs to be being transformed from glory to glory as we look into the face of Jesus Christ. When I speak about amazing grace, you can't help but think of John Newton and his hymn, Amazing Grace. Grace is so amazing. When we consider what we used to be or what I could have been without Jesus, when I think of where my life would have gone if I had not known Christ. As a believer, as a young Christian, I made so many poor decisions. And I was involved in so many things that could have destroyed my life and destroyed my testimony, but because of Christ's grace, he has kept me from so many things that I would have regretted later on in my life. I'm thankful that I came to know Christ as a teenager, that he prevented me from a lot of those things. But I know what I used to be before I was a believer in Christ. And I remember the verses that God used to bring me to salvation. It was actually the book of Galatians. Reading through the book of Galatians, and I saw this entire list, and it described me. And then it says, And those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That was me. That's what I once was. And as we understand what we once were... It helps us to understand and appreciate the divine grace that God intervened with. When each of us consider our own sin and rebellion, it should cause us to shudder. Grace is so amazing that it cannot be abused when we really understand it. How shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? May it never be when we really understand grace, it causes us to shudder what we used to be and it causes us to shudder thinking that I want to ever go back into a lifestyle of habitual rebellion against my Savior. In fact, Titus 2.11 tells us, for the grace of God that, has brings, that, that brings salvation to all men has appeared. This grace that brings salvation has appeared to all of us and what does this grace do? It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope and great appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, why did he give himself? That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar treasure, zealous for good works. That's what the grace of God teaches us. Nearly 34 years... After John Newton's conversion, he finally wrote a pamphlet describing what it was like being a slave trader. After years of leaving a life of taking men and women and putting them in bondage and boarding them like cattle on ships, he finally renounced his former slave profession and he published a blazing pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. The tract described the horrific conditions of the ship. Newton apologized that it took him so long to make a public statement. So many years after renouncing it, he wrote in this pamphlet, It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business which my heart now shudders. And he wrote that hymn, Oh, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. It was because John Newton appreciated what he once was and now who he was now in Christ. Those are the two things that we are going to examine this morning. God's grace is so amazing. Two simple things that we're going to look at. One, what we used to be and now who we are in Christ. Simple outline. What we used to be, and now what we are in Christ. My prayer today, and my prayer all week long, has been this for you. That the knowledge of God's grace will provoke your soul to desire to live soberly. When you meditate on God's grace, that you will live seriously. You will live righteously and godly in this present age. That is my prayer, and that your focus and your motivation will be the appearing of your great God and Savior, that that will be the thing that drives you, that you will be looking forward to this great Savior who has brought this amazing grace to you. Oh, can you imagine what that will be one day when you and I are able to look Jesus in the face? May that motivate you to live a godly, sober, and righteous life today because what he has done in spite of what we were. Let us consider what we used to be, and let us also know what we now are in Christ. First of all, let's let's go through verses 1 through 3. Let us consider what we were, what we were prior to salvation. Theologians use this state and have called it the word or the, the term total depravity of mankind. Well, we need to, to define this term biblically, not according to man's traditions. This term total depravity, I think, has taken on a an unhealthy and unbiblical extreme, and I want to teach you this morning, give you some Bible doctrine that'll help you understand what does that actually mean, the total depravity of man. The Bible teaches because of our sin and our guilt that there's nothing you and I can do to merit forgiveness. That's what I think the Bible is using when it says that we are depraved and without God. It means that there is absolutely nothing you can do in your deeds, law fulfillment, or promises or vows to God, there's nothing you can do to merit salvation. In fact, as soon as you mention the word merit, it is no longer forgiveness. It's what you deserve. This is what distinguishes biblical Christianity from all other religions. Listen to me this morning. This is what makes Christianity unique, is that salvation is 100% a free gift of God's grace. There are a lot of pseudo-Christians out there, a lot of cult Christians who say, Christ is not enough. Christ maybe opened the door for salvation and I've got to keep the laws, I've got to keep keep the doctrines, I've got to keep the teachings of whatever this religious system is. That denies that Christ alone, through faith alone, is sufficient. For one sacrifice Christ has perfected forever Those who are being sanctified. That is the biblical teaching uh, of of total depravity. 100% of salvation is God's choice to save sinners. He saves sinners in Christ. The Bible teaches us also that man is fully responsible to respond to the revelation that God provides. However, God is under no obligation to save us other than his own character. Total depravity teaches what is wrongly described as total depravity, that man is so depraved that God first has to regenerate you and then God has to give you faith. Otherwise, we are taking credit for what God has done. That's absurd. You don't have to. Give a gift irresistibly and force it on someone for it still to be a gift and for them to be responsible to accept it. This teaching of total depravity is so extreme that it goes to the far, it says that mankind is unable to repent when God graciously and lovingly offers salvation and forgiveness. That man cannot do that. Man is unable to respond. Man is unable to hear Man is unable to even think about anything that is spiritual. This was never taught by the early church fathers. Let me, let me be emphatic about that for this morning. For 400 years this was never taught by any of the early church fathers. The first one who ever taught this was Augustine. and then it was picked up by some of the reformers, and now it has become entrenched in many biblical teachers. I respect these teachers. They're my brother in Christ. They love the Word of God. They have a high value of God. They have a high value of Scripture. They have a high value of salvation. They have a low view of mankind, which we all should. But to say that man is unable to respond, even when God lovingly, graciously offers and compels men to come, I think is going beyond what the biblical record tells us. The Bible tells us clearly that we are image bearers of God. That God has blessed us and gifted us with the capacity to reason. All of our faculties, however, and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, the sending of Christ, the good news of the gospel, these are all gifts of God. Man doesn't just decide that he's going to come to God on his own. That's not what I'm teaching this morning. No, we don't. We respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction. We hear the gospel message. We have a conscience that is pricked and probed when we hear the gospel. And God draws us lovingly through those things, and we have the responsibility to respond to God's overtures of love and grace. I think the verses of Hebrews chapter 2 1 are very sobering and they are very real. It's not just hyperbole here. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things spoken. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgressor and disobedient received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which was first delivered to the Lord and then to us who heard Him, God bearing witness by various miracles and wonders by the Holy Spirit that He gave according to His will? How could we possibly ever discern truth? if we had to say that I can't understand it until I'm regenerated, you would be unable to properly evaluate any truth claim. The people of Berea were not like that. The people of Berea were told they were more noble-minded and that they searched the scriptures daily to see if those were things were so, and as a result, many of them believed. Without grace, however, the Bible teaches us that we are dead. What is the term dead? Now, many of these reformed teachers and Augustine himself taught that what it meant by the word dead, maybe you've never heard this before, but it's, it's being taught everywhere that we are in a corpse like state that we are dead. We're like a corpse. We can't hear. We can't see. We're, 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 unable to respond to even God's love because we are dead in a corpse-like state. Dead does not mean that we are not able to admit that we are lost. Dead does not mean that we are not able to admit that we're blind. This passage starts out by saying that we are dead in trespasses and in sin. This is the locative case in the original language, which means in reference to, in this realm, in this area alone, we are like dead people. What does it mean? I am dead with reference to sin. I am dead with reference to to, uh, uh, my transgressions. What that means is I am dead in regard to what all that sin implied. I am dead in everything that sin brought to humankind. That's the area that I am dead. It means that I am separated from God. When Adam sinned, what did God say? The day that you eat this apple, you will die. Did Adam become a corpse where he could no longer hear God? Did Adam become a corpse where he could no longer felt guilt, where he no longer felt shame, where he could no longer reach out and accept what God gave him? That's not what happened to Adam. Adam still had a conscience. Adam was still trying to work his and merit his way back to God by making the fig leaves. God heard, Adam heard God's voice. He he was able to respond to it, but what did he do? He hid, he covered himself up, and he made excuses. That's what it means to be dead in our sins. Let me give you some logical reasons why I don't believe deadness means a corpse. I'm going to give you just a couple of them, and you can jot these down. One of them is found in Romans chapter 6 and verse 2 and 1 Peter 2 4. And I wish we were dead like a corpse to sin. How shall we continue to sin those who are dead to sin? It doesn't mean that you're a corpse when you come to know Jesus to sin. Man, wouldn't that be great if it meant to be dead to sin, I was just a corpse. I could no longer be tempted. I could no longer have wrong thoughts because I'm a corpse. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 it says, "We are dead to sin, that we might live to righteousness. It doesn't mean that I am a corpse to sin. It doesn't mean that I'm never, ever tempted again. It doesn't mean that I'll never have a wrong word come out of my mouth, a wrong thought to enter my mind. I am not a corpse. But what it does mean is I am no longer under the ramifications of sin. With reference to sin, all that sin wanted to do to you and I were dead to it. It can no longer separate us from God. It can no longer condemn us. It can no longer say that we're guilty. It can no longer shame us, and it can no longer enslave you. That's what it means here in this verse to be dead to sin. Also consider this. Why would Jesus teach in parables, Mark 4.12, to mask truth from people if they were a corpse? You don't have to teach in parables to a dead person. You can just come out and spell it like it is. Why would Jesus tell demonic spirits not to tell people that he was the Messiah? Why would he tell his disciples, I am the Christ and I am going to the cross, but don't tell anybody if they were dead corpses? It makes absolutely no sense. Let's look at this doctrine biblically and try to understand it. In that same parable, we're told that Satan comes and he snatches the seed, Mark four fifteen from those who hear the word of God. That is absolutely unreasonable and makes the Bible nonsensical that Satan would come and say, you know what, that's corpse over there and I'm going to take the seed just in case he might want to believe it. It makes no sense. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 4, that Satan is the God of this age who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Can you imagine Satan going around putting blindfolds on corpses? It makes no sense. Again, Why would Jesus say that there are degrees of accountability if we were a corpse? He says, those cities that saw my miracles, woe into those cities because they will be held in a higher standard of accountability because they had greater enlightenment. Again, that makes no sense. In John chapter 15 and verse 22, Jesus said, if I had not spoken to you, you would not have sinned, but now you have no excuse for your sin. Listen, you would have every excuse in the world. You can just say, you know what, I was a corpse. I couldn't hear it. I was blind. I couldn't see it. So to be dead in sin doesn't mean you're in a corpse-like state. So what exactly does it mean? I think the illustration of the prodigal son is the perfect one that Jesus himself gave. He said he was dead, but now he's alive. What happened to the prodigal? The prodigal was in rebellion. The prodigal was living in self-will. The prodigal was indulging in every passion that he wanted to do. But what did the prodigal do? The prodigal came to himself. The prodigal said, I will go to my father. The prodigal said, I will say, I am no longer worthy to be your son. I will come back and I will ask for forgiveness. That's what it means to be dead in our trespasses. It is right that we should be married, Jesus said in his parable, and be glad for your brother was dead and now he is alive. We are guilty. We have rebelled. We are alienated. We are separated. We are without fellowship. Remember who you were before you came to Christ. That is our description. God the Father is under no obligation to save us. It is only because of His gracious character that He does forgive us. Second condition that we had, we once walked under the dominion of darkness. Verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Let's break this phrase down. It's an apt description, walking. It's a general tenor and bent of habitual choices. That was our life before we came to know Christ. We are characterized by the course of this age and the prince and the power of the air. These two phrases describe the current age or propensities that are dominated by a dark and sinister force. And that's the way we walked before we knew Jesus. The power of the air describes all disembodied spirits that are bent on influencing people to rebel against God and His rightful authority over your life. This spiritual enmity is opposed to everything that is holy, everything that is good, and everything that is just, and that is the way that we walked according with that pattern the spiritual forces that are at work now in the sons of disobedience. What does that mean? When Jesus confronted opposition, he often said to them, you are the son of your father, the devil. Now, of course, he used that as a figure of speech, but he used that to denote all those who are influenced, who are energized. In fact, the word energized is used here, who now works the, the the spirit that is energizing, oh, is the Greek word, it means supernaturally empowered to do his will. That's what we were before we came to know Christ. Satan is the one who influenced us supernaturally under his realm and under his authority. It is only grace that can deliver. Galatians chapter 1, 3 says that Jesus gave himself for our sin that he might Deliver us from this present age. You and I were alienated. We were separated. We were guilty. We were under condemnation. And only grace can remedy that. We were walking according to the course of this dominant world. And if you ever wonder that if it's out there, just pick up the newspaper, just watch Fox News. You watch any news and you will realize that this world is dominated and its propensity is toward darkness. And you and I were right in there with them until we came to know Christ. We all once conducted ourselves. Verse three, look at verse three. There's a little bit of a change here. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. What is Paul meaning here? The book of of Ephesians is a contrast between once Jews and once Gentiles. And again, he's doing that in this passage. And you Gentiles who were dead in your trespasses and under the course of this world and influenced by demonic spirits and pagan religion. And then he gets down to verse 3. And he says, Jews were no better off. You can have all the religion you want, you can have all the law keeping you want, and you can have all the formality of being a good person, but by nature, that is not who you are. Look what Paul says about the Jews in verse 3. We all once conducted ourselves. We're enslaved to our self-will, all Jews included. To conduct yourself or to have your conversation means that you busy yourself about those things. You occupy your thoughts. You energize your mind. Your focus is all on those things. The realm was the lusts of our flesh. Let's look at this passage in verse 3. Among whom we all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Notice that word of. In the original language, that's a subjective a a subjective genitive, which means liter- what it, the idea of that, that genitive phrase, of our flesh, it means the flesh is the subject. It's producing all of these desires. That's where we, even Jews, we conducted ourselves. Even though we had the law, our flesh was producing all of this lifestyle contrary to God. Trying to find where I'm at. Our flesh is our unregenerated, fallen nature, and that's what drives our desires. Without Christ, with regard to the flesh, we Jews, he's saying, were no better off than you Gentile counterparts. Even having the law does not make one saved. Romans three nine. Forgive me for reading this morning, but I told. <laughs> Chris Ruiz, I says if I don't, Chris, we'll be here all day. So I'm going to try to stick to it. Romans three nine. What then are we better than they? This is Romans three nine. Are we better than Gentiles? Paul's asking. The word of God defines that all previously charged, both Jews and Greeks, that we were all under sin. The word of God defines the flesh as our self human nature that has been corrupted. At the source, with its desires, when the flesh is unchecked, it produces all the excesses that we find in Galatians chapter five, verse nineteen. Take these verses in Romans that help us to understand what the flesh is. when Paul says that we conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh and we fulfilled the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. What is he describing here when he talks about the flesh? The flesh is that unregenerated part of mankind that drives us by our passionate desires that are at enmity with God. Romans seven eighteen. For I know this, that I in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing good dwells. That's what he says we all conducted ourselves. Romans 5, 8, 5 through 9 teaches us that the fleshly mind is death. The fleshly mind is enmity against God. The fleshly mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It is only our physical, it's only physical—it's not only our physical desires that busy themselves about their self-will. It's also our minds, the deep thoughts of our mental faculties. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Pride, selfish ambition, hatred. Envy, All of those things are encompassed. And then the last phrase, it says, by nature, we're children of wrath. No different from the Gentiles. By nature, it connotes the idea from birth. In verse 3, it says, we were by nature. That is connoting the idea that this is coming from birth. Paul uses it in the book of Galatians, and he says, you Gentiles were sinners, but we Jews who by Nature are not sinners of the Gentiles by our birth. And he says, we were no better off. We have concluded that no one is justified by the works of law. We who by nature, by our birth, were Jewish people. And so when he uses that in this phrase, he's saying by nature, that is by our very birth. This is who we were. We were children of wrath, children who deserved wrath. No matter who you are, you cannot be justified by the law, Because when you do choose to do right, sin is still with you. Paul the Pharisee did everything according to the law. Yet he said, I could not have known sin except through the law, for I would would not have known lust or covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet'? But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manners of evil desire. And yet Paul said to the Philippians, I walked according to the law blamelessly. So even when you and I are doing the right thing and making good choices, by nature, sin is still dwelling with us. And this is why the grace of God is so desperately needed in our lives. We are dead. There's nothing that can intervene. We are alienated from God. We are guilty. We feel condemned. We feel shame, and we're trying to hide from God. We're under the course of this world. He influences our thoughts. Our lusts and our passions, which are by nature, they drive us. And this is who all of us were before we came to Christ. It's only grace that we can hope to be saved. Paul said this to the Galatians, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. What keeps a person from experiencing God's grace? This is the most important question for you this morning. What is it that keeps you from experiencing the grace of God in your life? If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, what is it that's preventing you? Those who teach total depravity in its extreme form would say it's because God decreed it so. But what does the Bible actually tell us? What keeps you from receiving the grace of God? And as a believer, what is it that's keeping you from enjoying and experiencing the power of grace in your life? What does the Bible say? What keeps us from this? Is it a decree that I'm totally depraved and I can't confess sin? I can't confess that I'm lost or I can't come to God and admit that I'm a sinner? Or is it because that you and I know who God is, but we choose not to glorify Him as God, as Roman 1 says. Is it because that we are not thankful and as a result we become futile in our thoughts? Second Corinthians 3.13 teaches us this, that there is a veil on our hearts. We are spiritually dead. However, the rest of that verse goes, says, nevertheless... When the heart turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Grace is freely given when you and I confess, you know what, I can't keep the law. I can't do this. I am unable. Heard this illustration of this father. He was in the stairway and he was trying to teach his kids this principle. And he says, I want you to get to the top of the stairs without touching the wall and without touching the railing. And they... They looked at their dad and, and they're at the bottom of the stairs. And they said, Dad, what do you mean? He says, I want you to get to the top of the stairs. And finally, one of the little boys says, Dad, I can't. He says, That's what I wanted you to see. And he was teaching them about Jesus. He says, Will you get on my back? He says, Yes, I will. And the little boy climbed up on his back and he walked to the top of the steps. He says, That's the way salvation is, son. You'll never make it, and you can't do it. And the law keeps showing you over and over and over again. But you can ask God, because Jesus will carry you to the top of the steps. And that's what grace is all about, and that's why it's so amazing. What we cannot do, when we turn our heart to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Lastly, let us consider who we are now in Christ, four through seven. What has God done and who is God? God's very character is to be rich in mercy. Look at the little word here, but. It's the strongest word in the Greek language for the word but. It's an adversative, but God. And then he describes God. God who is rich in mercy. That's one reason. The second reason, because of the great love for which he loved us. And then we've got a, a, a concessive clause In spite of the fact of being dead in trespasses, we've got three descriptions that says what God has done for us. He has made us alive. When did he make us alive? He made us alive even though we were dead. Why did he make us alive? Because he's rich in mercy. And why did he make us alive? Because he also loved us. God is only bound to save us by his character alone. Our faith does not manipulate God. God does it because He has chosen out of His gracious, kind character to save sinners. The mercy of God. This verse came to my mind when I was studying this. I tried to memorize this many years ago, but I probably have to read it again. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgressions of the remnant of your people? For God delights in mercy. That is our God. God is rich, full, wealth, in mercy. This is the character of our Lord. And thank goodness for that. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great mercy. The next verse says, The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all His works. Remember, it is not our exercise of our free will to believe that forces God to forgive. We are not sovereign in any way like that, but God has already freely chosen to forgive all those who will humble themselves and come before Him and ask for forgiveness. Justification is all, 100% of God, and yet you and I are fully responsible to respond to God's overtures. The grace that saves continues to save. Look at the little parenthesis in verse 5, by grace you are saved. And the New King James, is in parentheses because it's sort of like a parenthetical. It doesn't really fit with the sentence. He's just sort of putting this out there, by grace you are saved. There's two verbs. One's a participle and the other's a present tense being verb. You are being saved and have been saved. It's a complete, finished, final work. That's what salvation is. It is settled forever. John 5, 24 uses the same tense and the same type of uh, of, of construction where Jesus said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. And here's the perfect tense. But he has passed. The King James translates it as a present. He is passed from death to life, even though it's a perfect Because the perfect tense emphasizes the past act is present reality right now. He has passed or is passed right now from death to life. That is our present state. Another thing that God has done, He has raised us together. This is a one-time, finished, and completed act. God's raising and seating us with Christ is emphasized in this book of Ephesians throughout the first two chapters. In chapter 1. He tells us that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. And this is what God has done with us by our union. Not only is Christ raised from the dead, not only is Christ seated in heavenly places, you and I, by virtue of our union with Christ, are raised to walk in the newness of life. And we are enthroned with Christ in heavenly places. I think that has an eschatological emphasis that one day we are gonna see him as he is. To be seated is emphatic. It's a present experience. This is the exceeding great power toward us that Paul prays that we will realize and utilize the power of God to walk in the newness of life. We are raised with Christ. This is what grace does. Only grace can do that. Next thing, we are enthroned with Christ. We're seated in the heavenly realms. Like I said, this is an eschatological significance, something in the future. We are presently sealed by the Holy Spirit right now. And what does that present sealing do? It guarantees our inheritance that this ultimate redemption of His purchased possession is going to be realized as God's special treasure. God has certified us in the sense that we are already seated with Him. The phrase, in Christ, qualifies all of it. This is such an important little phrase in the book of Ephesians. Everything that God does for us, He has done before the ages, before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world, but it was done in Christ, God's elect one, and when we believe, we are placed in the elect body of Christ. The purpose of all of this, as we conclude, what is God going to do in the future, verse 7, that in the ages to come, He might show the successive waves of time from night now on into eternity, God is going to use His church to put on display His amazing grace and kindness. The word to show. It means to demonstrate. It means to prove by argument or to prove by action. And God has proved it by action and by argument. How did God prove it by argument? You were dead in your sins. And now look what God is doing in your life. You were walking according to the course of this age. You were under the dominion of darkness. And now what has God done? You were by nature driven by your fleshly desires. Not only your fleshly desires, but even your thoughts were away from God. And now what has God done? And He's demonstrating what God can do with lost people. Amazing, isn't it? And now God, how is he going to prove it? By actions? He's going to prove it by actions by saying, you know what? You are now raised to walk in the newness of life. You are now alive, who were dead with Christ, and Christ now lives in you to live His life through you. And not only that, you are enthroned with Jesus. You are right here in the realms of spiritual places because you have done. You are in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, God's going to show all this exceeding greatness of His character. This demonstrate God's gracious saving provision for lost sinners who were dead, alienated, separated, guilty, and condemned. Sinners who were walking, living, habitually, controlled by their self-centered passions and thoughts, totally under the control of the dominion of darkness, and by their very nature of birth, were characterized as children of wrath or deserving judgment. God is demonstrating His power of grace to make us alive, to raise us up, to seat us in heavenly places, to vindicate all that God did in Jesus Christ when He raised Him from the dead. He vindicated Him He glorified him and he justified him in all that he did. And now you and I vicariously are sharing in all of that through Jesus. You and I are vindicated. You and I are justified. You and I are exalted in receiving all that was due to Jesus. And this purpose was before the foundation of the world. And now it is shared by all those by virtue of their union with Christ. Because we are in the one who was elected before the foundation of the world. What is the application for all of this? When I thought of this passage of scripture, this old hymn came to my mind. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let your goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God, hears my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. One, we need to truly appreciate salvation. You must truly, to truly appreciate salvation, you must fully understand your prior condition. Don't ever underestimate, don't ever water down who you were without Christ. Don't say, I was just a good old boy. No, you weren't. You were dead. I was just having fun. I was just sowing my wild oats. No, you were walking according to the course of this world. I was just doing what everybody else does. No, you were a child of wrath, just as others were. So don't ever soft sell what we used to be to fully understand and appreciate the amazing grace of God. Secondly, live in victory right now. You can never understand the corruption that's in the world through lust and that we were fleshly, That our fleshly minds were rebels against God and that our, that our flesh has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. There's nothing we can do that pleases God in our flesh. It's unable to submit to God. It's not subject to the law of Christ. So what do I do right now as a believer? I don't try to live the Christian life in the power of my flesh. I apply who I am in Christ. I'm alive with him. I'm united with him. I'm resurrected with him. I'm enthroned with him. Romans chapter 13 verse 14. What does that verse say? <laughs> But put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your responsibility. And make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Since there's nothing I can do to merit salvation, there's nothing I can do in my flesh that's going to merit spiritual maturity. That's a a hard one for us to get around. And Paul wrote an entire letter the book of Galatians to to, to refute that idea. Oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? I put Jesus Christ clearly before you crucified. This is one thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by doing it in your own strength? Paul refutes that idea, and we need to refute it as well. But what does that mean? Does it mean that I just have a laissez-faire about my Christian life? Absolutely not. It means that my union with Christ supplies all the grace I need. Therefore, it's through my union with Christ that I progress spiritually. I have to abide in Him as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself because it's all about abiding in Jesus because apart from Him, This is a hard one for us to swallow. You can do nothing. Lastly, just because you cannot live by the law's holy standard, it does not mean that you cannot admit it. This morning, you might be looking at what God has required of you, and you never realized before, you know what? I am separated from God. I'm alienated from God. I am driven by my lusts. I am driven by my desires. My thoughts are not what I want them to be. You know what the Bible tells us this morning? You, like the prodigal, can come to yourself. He said, enough is enough. I want to go home. I want to be with my father. I want to have fellowship with him. I remember what it was like when I was walking close to Jesus. And boy, it was a lot better than what I've got right now. And if you're not saved, if you're not sure that you're going to go to heaven, what do you have to do this morning? Simply call on the name of the Lord and admit that you need a Savior. Call out for grace. Ask Christ to live his resurrected life through you. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily we are constrained to be. Father. God, there's so much doctrine in this little, little paragraph this morning. It's almost hard to assimilate all of it, Lord. But those two things, God, let us walk away with it this morning, understanding, considering what I used to be, fully understanding how lost a state I was, how nothing I could do that would ever merit salvation. May we understand today how good, how kind, how gracious, and how loving our God is who made us alive, who raised us, who enthroned us, who in the ages to come is going to show the exceeding riches of His grace toward those who are now in Christ Jesus. Lord, my prayer today is the grace of God that brings salvation to all men might teach us to live soberly, righteously, and godly right now in this present age. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name.